everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, joined by Terry Fakes. And I just have to say at the beginning, the Friday Q&A episodes of your Revelation series have been some of the most listened to podcasts we've ever done. Uh, great series on Wednesday nights and great idea to do the Friday podcast. It was. I feel like we were able to go into more detail on some of the questions and pick up questions you don't have time to answer in class. I find Revelation a fascinating book, and apparently so do our listeners. So I, I feel like that was really good. And I tell you, Cole, we got really good questions about mm-hmm. Revelation that took us into some very productive areas. So great questions. Really good questions, really good subject matter. As we've been talking about uh, what to do, we've had a lot of people say they want to continue on Fridays. We've loved doing the Q&A on Fridays. And so obviously we can't do quite the same thing as we did with Revelation. But if you can't do Revelation, what's better than going to the very beginning of the Bible and doing some questions on the book of Genesis? So uh, it's kind of fortuitous that this worked out the way it did. But I have noticed that most people have the most questions on the very first book and the very last book of the Bible. That's really true. That's interesting observation is beginnings and endings. As we sit in the middle of this story of the Christian life, uh, we wonder, where did we come from and where are we going? And I suppose that's an eternal human question. Where did we come from? Where are we going? But what prompted this discussion, so let me cue this up, is you started a sermon series on the book of Genesis. Maybe I would call it a little off the beaten path. As I recall, you opened it by saying, Uh, Am I going to tell you how old the earth is in this series? No. You know, am I going to tell you this? No. But going to focus in on some often overlooked and really important themes in the book of Genesis. So you started with the story of the fig leaves. And I'll cue this up and you can correct me if I get this wrong. But essentially what you did was you took a look at Genesis chapter two. And in Genesis chapter two, you may remember God has created the heavens and the earth He's created Adam and Eve. He created this beautiful garden of Eden for them to live in. It's an idyllic setting. And the last verse of chapter two is, and the man and the woman were naked and they were not ashamed. Well, as we roll right into chapter three, then of course you have the temptation of the serpent who lies to Eve. And of course, they both end up eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then something curious happens It says, and they realized they were naked, and so they made for themselves garments. Actually, think loincloths is the way you described it, which is really accurate, of fig leaves. And this was the basis for what you wanted to talk about. So let me ask you to start with, what did you really want to talk about? What was one of the key points in this sermon? Maybe map out the rest of this sermon, because I'd like to jump off and and discuss some things you didn't discuss. I think my reason for doing this series was I was thinking about an area where a lot of Christians struggle is in the masks that they wear, the layers that they put up, the curation that takes place in the way that we, we manage our appearance before others and before God. And as I was thinking about the problems that a lot of Christians have, things that I've seen in in our own church, so many of them stem from the fact that uh, we're afraid to be who we are. We're just, we're afraid to be our true selves. And what struck me was, and, and there's a passage in Tim Keller's new book on forget called forgive on this, that every effort we make to cover up 
or hide or manage our appearance is like a fig leaf uh, in the Garden of Eden. So the more I looked into this and started doing some research for the series, the more I thought, this is a great image to begin to talk about things like hiding, anxiety, fear, uh, curation of our image in a digital age, barriers to people's transformation in Christ. So the story of Adam and Eve is great because it describes not just the beginning of the universe, but the prime human condition before mm-hmm. sin, at sin, after sin. And the way the Bible describes the, one of the results after sin is that they realize their own nakedness and they make their own covering because of their shame. And the way the way that we're going to end up doing the series is this theme actually pervades the entire book of Genesis. So all the relationships in Genesis, which Genesis is, is a book about broken families, one broken family, starting in chapter 12, that goes through right. about four generations. And over and over again, what you see is these people dealing with their brokenness with fig leaves and then realizing that they need to deal with their brokenness through God's own provision. So what happens in the story of Adam and Eve is they realize that they're naked. They do a very human thing, which is they hide, they cover, they flee from the presence of God. And then in the end, God makes a covering for them. And this is the first picture of the gospel in the Bible. And all of us in some way or another have to confront our fig leaves that we've used to keep other people and God away from who we really are. And we have to embrace the covering that God has made for us in Jesus Christ. And so if anything, it's a governing metaphor or an image to help us deal with things that stand in the way of our own transformation. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting that that's going to be a theme that runs through Genesis. And I'll make one comment. I like approaching it that way, because when we say it's going to be the story of broken families, which is true, you've got all the marriages, all the kids, these are very imperfect families. But you can look at that and just say, wow, if only they had good counselors, uh, good marriage counselors, they would have been better parents. But what Genesis wants to say is that sin has marred all of our relationships. This isn't just a, well, if, you know, so uh, Abraham and Sarah just weren't good parents and Jacob just had some personal problems. This goes deeper than that. This is a reflection of humanity as a result of the fall. And I think that's a healthier way to approach it. In fact, you get into the difference between guilt and shame and not to retread the ground of the sermon. But here's what I here's how I would summarize it. Guilt is I did wrong. And shame is I am wrong. Would you agree with that assessment? Yeah, I I would agree with that. I mentioned in the sermon that I think Brene Brown's books have been helpful on this topic. I think in the first service I mentioned, and I think that's the one on the recording, I mentioned I don't think that I wouldn't fully endorse Brene Brown. I don't think that sometimes she's very good about what to do with shame. But I do think she's very good about identifying the difference between guilt and shame. And she's certainly illuminating on how we deal with our emotions. And what she basically uh, comes at this problem thinking about the external versus the internal aspect of guilt. So guilt on the outside, like you said, I've done something bad. When that is not dealt with, and what we would say in biblical terms is not atoned for, it becomes shame. Now, I am bad. I have not just done something instrumentally. It's part of who I am that is bad. And one of the pervasive questions of the Bible is, what should you do with your guilt? And therefore, one of the pervasive questions of the Bible is, and if you don't, what do you do with your shame? 
And Adam and Eve are ashamed in the first in the first story that we see in the Bible. They are naked and they are ashamed of their nakedness. They're exposed, and everybody knows what it's like to feel exposed. And they find out that they're they're culpable before a holy God, and they have to do something about their shame. And God ends up dealing with their shame, which I think is the powerful point of the story that's often missed. God goes to them. He's the one that makes it right. He's the one that deals with their shame. He's the one that is able to give them a true and lasting covering. But it all boils down to sin leads to guilt, leads to shame. And somewhere in there, there needs to be a break in the cycle, or we have a shame that we can't get rid of. Yeah. Well, here, let me tell you where my mind went on this. And I want to take jump off on a tangent a little bit. The I did wrong versus I am wrong. You know, guilt that isn't dealt with, isn't atoned for, isn't repented of and forgiven then becomes shame. And I want to talk about sin for a minute because Romans chapter six really jumped into my head as a tangent when you were talking about this and the idea of the nature of sin. You know, the New Testament thinks of sin as in both transactional terms. Sin is something you do or don't do. And sin is a condition that you have. And in this, you have acts for which you feel guilty but then if you have unatoned for, undealt with, uh, unforgiven things, you, you become uh, ashamed. And that becomes more who you are. And one of the tr- things I have pastorally that I like to use Romans 6 is Romans 6 has that beautiful, it's talking to Christians who have repented. And now it's what shall we do with the acts of sin? Shall we continue to commit sins because we have grace to forgive them? And he says, Mm -hmm. by no means. And the reasoning he uses is, you're no longer a sinner. You may commit sins for which you repent and are forgiven, but you are no longer a sinner. That is no longer your identity if I'm saying this well. And so my shorthand is saying is that Christians commit sins, but they are not committed to sin in Mm -hmm. the sense that you take someone who is a sinner, has the the terminal condition of sin, who repents and is renewed. Now you may commit a sin, but you you no longer have that shame. You have guilt of the sin and you turn it to God, as 1 John 1, 9 says, present, confess that to God and your sins are forgiven. But I'd like, what are your thoughts on that idea? Uh, It seems to me that Romans 6 is addressing this a little bit, is the idea of unrepentant sin, which is a terminal condition, and repentant sin, which is still imperfection of Christians. I mean, shine some light on that. I think that's an interesting jumping off of the whole guilt and shame idea. It reminds me of the way Augustine summarized that passage in the Christian life, which is before Christ, we are not able not to sin, which is a double negative there, but it means you can't do anything but sin. In Christ, now you are able not to sin, which means you may still sin as a Christian, but now for the first time, because of the Holy Spirit in your life, you are able not to sin. With the way you said it earlier, you're no longer a slave to sin, you're a slave to righteousness. And then in the glorification, when we are raised from the dead, we will be not able to sin. And we will be perfected. And so it is that gradual. If you're in Christ, you're in that middle state of now for the first time, you are able not to sin. 
That doesn't mean you won't sin, but your sins have been paid for. So you you actually have had your sins paid in full if you're trusting in Christ, present, past, present, and future, which is a very different situation than you find yourself in outside of Christ, which is you are the one on the hook for all your sins. Uh, your sins, if you die outside of Christ, will have to be paid for just like everybody else's, but you'll be the one paying. When you die in Christ, your sins will have to be paid for, but they'll be paid for by Christ. So one way or the other, sin is getting paid for. And uh, it depends on if you're in Christ or not as to who pays for those sins. For From the shame angle, what's interesting is not only does God give us a covering when we're in Christ, he begins to roll back and uh, renew and heal us of the things that we've done in our spirit. So in 2 Corinthians 3, for example, beholding the glory of Christ, we are being transformed from one image to glory to an, one image of glory to another. That's a gradual transition. But as we come to Christ, beholding his glory is actually the thing that begins to change us. And that includes things like shame, guilt, unforgiveness, uh, regret, all the things that we might struggle with with our previous sin. God is healing those things over time in Christ. You know, another thing, as I'm thinking that through a little bit, this idea of a sinful condition that shame is enduring and without repentance, it's a terminal condition. But something you said before, and I completely agree with, is because of the sin, the disobedience in the garden, death enters the world. You know, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And the court serpent lied and said, you won't die. And However, that was a lie. And so now death enters the world. And uh, one thing I was thinking there is now that Adam and Eve have become infected by sin, they have this terminal condition, they will now die. Their bodies will die and their souls are, quote, in jeopardy. And of course, you kick off then the whole plan of redemption. God is so gracious, he not only clothes them, he begins the process to uh, cleanse them as well. But that leads me to the idea of regeneration and why the concept for Christians, why regeneration is rooted all the way back in this story to me, is you don't need to just fix your sins now. It's not a self-help thing. You Actually, death is going to have to happen at this point because sin leads to death. And so as Paul talks about our old self was crucified, it reminds me of the theological idea of regeneration. First of all, what is the theological idea of regeneration? And do you see a connection back to this event? Well, this is interesting because this, this may be an area where we disagree theologically on this topic. Uh -huh. But re regeneration traditionally is the, the act of the spirit making us new is the is what we call regeneration. So. We have been made new in Christ. Second Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The Spirit actually gives us life again. So it's like Ezekiel's uh, prophecy to the dead bones, that the right. word of God comes and they live. They rise up and they live. And so the picture biblically is not just a not very good person becoming a good person. It's a dead person coming alive again. And so regeneration is what we believe takes place in order for us to have faith and put our trust in God is the spirit regenerates our hearts through the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the word. We are given as regenerated people, we're given the gift of faith. We put our trust in Christ. And then the rest of our life is essentially learning how to obey God, be transformed into the image of his son. 
Um, Christians disagree, and this is an interesting disagreement and one that uh, sometimes people don't even know they do disagree on, about when exactly regeneration happens. Mm -hmm. Does it happen before faith? Does it happen after faith? Does it happen at the same time as faith? Does it happen once and for all? That would be the one I would take the hardest stand on. Uh, but the timing is kind of an interesting question. Uh, but regeneration, basically, whatever you believe about it is, the act of the Spirit making you into a new person. Uh, the old is gone, the new has come. You've been regenerated uh, by the Spirit. Well, let me take this back to the story, because here's where my thought process went, is that Adam and Eve can't fix their problem. Because now that sin is into the world, it's beyond their capability. And of course, God begins to, quote, fix the human problem through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the interesting thing about the fig leaves is we know that the way to, quote, fix this problem is to be regenerated through repentance and trust in Jesus Christ. We need God's grace through our trust in Jesus Christ so that we can be regenerated, so that our old self is dead and we're raised, as, as Romans says, to walk in newness of life. But that's not what Adam and Eve do. And your point was, it's not what we often traditionally do. What do we do with that shame? Well, their fig leaves were an attempt to cover it up. And here's here were my notes on that. As you said, people do three basic things, other than doing the right thing, which is turn to Jesus Christ, place your trust in Jesus Christ. But to fix this ourselves, we either try to cover it up, and that's what the fig leaves are, uh, put on a persona, something. Secondly, you said we can sometimes blame, which of course is what Adam does, is like, okay, it's not my fault. And the third thing is that, and this was curious, we could be motivated to do so many good works we make up for it. And would you, were those the three ways that you wanted to focus in on in that? Because I thought that was very interesting observation that left to our own, you know, we're often tempted and we often try to deal with our shame in these unproductive ways. Yeah, I would say that's that's what I was trying to explain is you're going to try to deal with your shame and your guilt somehow. There's better ways than others to do it. There are also more popular ways than others to do it and mm -hmm. more socially acceptable ways than others. In in the series later, I think we're doing this in three or four weeks. One way to deal with this, it's not couched in the same language over guilt, but it's the fr frustration or the anxiety of seeing not seeing God do what you want God to do. Uh, you can do what Abraham does, which is he takes Hagar instead of Sarah and has a child with her instead. So that that would be the circuitous way of trying to deal with something outside of what God has decreed. And that's what Adam and Eve do. Right. They they try to do something other than go to God with their guilt and their shame. And uh, there's a lot of ways to do this. And there's some really popular ways in our culture of doing this right now. I'd say the most popular ways in our culture fit into those categories uh, one way or another, you can just forget that it exists altogether until it creeps up on you again. You can put it on other people. Um, I think victimhood is kind of an interesting way to deal with guilt in our culture right now. Victimhood is essentially saying, yes, I may have done something wrong, but it's nothing compared to the wrong that's been done to me. 
And right. so as long as we focus on that, it's like if we start at the top of the list of big things to deal with, I am so far down the list because I've been victimized by these other people. Why don't we worry about their uh, offenses? Right. That's kind of an interesting uh, way in our culture that people try to deal with guilt. And then, like you mentioned, trying to do enough good things is the way most people try to deal with their guilt. I can just make myself into a great person so that my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, uh, not realizing that sin is a permanent stain. Uh, Mm -hmm. One of the illustrations I was thinking about using in the sermon but did did not make it into the sermon was in Treasure Island, where if you've read Treasure Island at the beginning, uh, one of the guys gets the black spot. And when you get the black spot, you get this message that has the black black spot on a little piece of cloth. And when you have the black spot, that means that people are out for you. You're going to die. And no matter what you do, you can get rid of that spot if you want to. Um, You can ignore it if you want to, but there's now a bounty that's been put out on you and there's nothing you can do about it. And it reminded me of the passage in Isaiah 118 that says, come, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet. And, And the implication there is, Scarlet that no Tide pen or magic eraser can get rid of, permanently dyed red. I will make them as white as snow. So there's a removal of something permanent. Or for maybe the more highbrow cultured people among us, like Macbeth, uh, when you have the blood (laughs) on the hands that cannot be be taken away. Washed off. Yeah. So whether you find it that's a great point. Treasure Island or Muppet Treasure Island or Shakespeare, this concept of the permanence of guilt and and what people try to do about it kind of pervades our culture. Let me take it one more way that I thought was interesting. This this again, and this is one of the things about preaching that's so interesting, is most of your prep doesn't make it into the sermon. But I was reading Brueggemann's commentary on Genesis, Walter Brueggemann, who's a very famous Old Testament scholar. He had a little aside on this story where he says that the story itself is a theological critique of anxiety. And this this wasn't the way I wanted to explain this text, but I think it's an important thought that's wrapped up in this text. He says, it presents a prism through which the root cause of anxiety can be understood. The man and woman are controlled by their anxiety. They seek to escape it by attempting to circumvent the reality of God. For the reality of God and the reality of anxiety are related to each other. Overcoming The overcoming of God is thought to lead to the nullification of anxiety about self, but this story teaches otherwise. Maybe reflect on that a little bit. I'll read this last line again. The overcoming of God is thought to lead to the nullification of anxiety about self, but this story teaches otherwise. Yeah, and I'll go ahead and put in the, the warning on Brueggemann, whom I also have read widely like you have. He's really insightful. However, uh, Brueggemann, he will psychologize the text. He'll mythologize the text. And I would not consider Brueggemann at this point, just for our listeners, to be an Orthodox uh, Christian, in, in my view. Nevertheless, I think his points are well made. Just Let's just be careful sometimes, I think, that Brueggemann will make that text mean everything except what it actually says. Now, having said that, I I just wanted to give that caveat so that we don't quote someone and give them unintentional uh, authority. I think it's I a like little hard. On, I think it's a little harsh on Brueggemann, but yes, you think I, I'm he's certainly unfair he's certainly no he's certainly no evangelical. Let's put it that way. Well, that, that's certainly true. But my point about him is is that if you want to turn this and Jordan Peterson, by the way, has done the exact yeah. same thing with this, is that you do realize 
that there are layers and layers and broader, bigger issues, whether like Brueggemann, you want to come at this from the fundamental anxiety of humanity or Jordan Peterson, you want to come at it with the Jungian archetypes that rule his thinking. Any way you look at it, it speaks to the depth of the text. And I do agree that along with this guilt and sin comes an underlying anxiety. And I think uh, Brueggemann's insightful in, in a lot of ways. But here's well, here's another thing. That, go ahead. I'm sorry. It's interesting that you brought up Jordan Peterson on this. And I'm, I was trying to look up this. I think I saw this on Instagram um, where there was a Babylon B article and the title was something like Jordan Peterson extracts every meaning out of this text, except the one that God intended. And uh, you cert that, that certainly is kind of a satirical way of approaching the way that he sometimes approach approaches biblical texts. Uh, I, I think Brueggemann does that sometimes. I, I Like I said, I would agree with you that Brueggemann is certainly not somebody that has a high view of the inspiration of and inerrancy of Scripture. But maybe I'll, I'll give a little bit more credence to what he's saying here. I do think the story of Adam and Eve is about this topic of anxiety. It, he couches it in kind of existentialist language, like you would read in maybe Kierkegaard right. or somebody like that, the anxiety yes. of being alive, maybe Heidegger and these German existentialists who we've talked about on the podcast before. The point that I think is most incisive about that for our culture is we live in a culture that believes if we could just get rid of stigma, if we could just get rid of people levying their accusations and moral strictures against us, we would be free from anxiety. That anxiety is actually imposed from the outside in. Right. Whereas the Bible presents the picture of anxiety comes from the inside because living your life without reference to God is a surefire way to be anxious. And so this story is overcoming the overcoming of God is thought to lead to the nullification of anxiety about self. If if we could just get past the whole idea right. of God, this remnant of the past, then we would be free of anxiety. But the the way it turns out is we actually live in a world where people who believe in God is at an all-time low, at least in America, in our history, and anxiety is at an all-time high. Right. Trying to live against the grain of the universe is a surefire way to be anxious. And there is an element of this story that basically teaches what Adam and Eve try to do with their fig leaves is just ignore what has happened between them and God, which actually is going to make things a lot worse in the long run. I, I agree with that. I mean, think about the three ways that you pointed out to deal with shame is covering up the fig leaves, which for us might be our social media persona or the persona we present to the world, uh, playing the victim card or just working really hard to be a good person. All of those are fundamentally anxiety producing endeavors. So I would agree with that. And as a nod to Brueggemann, I thought that his work on Exodus as a fundamentally a power structure uh, was well done. But I'll tell you why I think Eugene, uh, not Eugene, excuse me, Jordan Peterson is so effective with people today is in a different way. He doesn't send people to Christ, but he actually has a fourth way of dealing with the shame. He'll say to young men in particular, you should be ashamed because you're lazy bums. Now, mm -hmm. make your bed, hope, you know, put your shoulders back straight and get out there and actually exercise some discipline and you will feel better about yourself. Now, you and I are going to suggest that 
that may be a much more productive way than the other three, but it will still end up failing. But I do think his approach is an interesting fourth way to deal with your shame. And that is pull yourself up by your bootstraps and go do some productive things. Well, I, I think that's right. And the reason he's appealing is because that is a surefire way to feel less shame in the short run, because right. it's a way to have less to be ashamed about. You know, yeah. it reminds me of the uh, Churchill quote. I'm, I can't remember at this point who he was talking about, but it was one of the other MPs. And he said, he is humble, but then again, he has so much to be humble about. <laughs> exactly. And that that's effectively Jordan Peterson's take here is, yeah, you're ashamed because you're living a life that is giving you a lot to be ashamed about. Right. And there are ways of mitigating that. Ultimately, this is not going to rid you of your deepest shame, but but it will get rid of some of the periphery shame in the short run. Well, and that kind of comes us back to your sermon, because really what we need to do is we need a solution. And one of the ways you characterize this solution, obviously, the clothing idea is, is important here. They were naked and not ashamed. Then, of course, they sin and they are ashamed. So they clothe themselves very inadequately with these pathetic little fig leaves. And, it, and then you went on to talk about how God is going to clothe us in righteousness. He's the only one that can give us uh, real clothes. And I remember the story in Zechariah 3, beautiful story. Uh, you have Joshua the high priest, Zechariah sees this vision of Joshua the high priest standing before the Lord, and Satan is standing beside him, accusing him. And so Joshua is standing there clothed in filthy garments, meaning he, you know, in, in the scripture, it basically means he's standing there with all of his sin. And God says, give him, remove the filthy garments and give him pure clothing. And it, it's a beautiful encapsulation that we can try to deal with our shame with fig leaves or all kinds of other things, but only God can give us pure, white, shining clothing, the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. I thought, what a fitting way to bring that story full circle. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the most powerful pictures in the Bible of this clothing motif that the high priest in soil garments is then exchanged with the righteous garments of Christ, which we see fulfilled in the New Testament. It's like when Jesus tells the parable of the wedding feast, where the people that are invited all have to wear the white garments. If you don't have white right. garment, you can't get in. That's the same kind of thing. The righteousness that we get from Christ is that white garment that replaces our old clothing. And that's the only way, actually, to get rid of your shame is to be made new through the blood of Christ. And that's what we see played out in the Adam and Eve story is God ends up clothing them. He makes a sacrifice, clothes them with skins, and fully covers them. It's a restoration. It's a redemption. It's a picture of the gospel that we're going to see later in the New Testament. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, we get an image of that. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful connection you're making as you go through here. I mean, there are a lot of other things, interesting things in Genesis, but to show how this little interaction is a precursor to the gospel and is the gospel in, in a brief uh, story is really powerful. So I have to ask you, where are you going next? Uh, what's what's coming up next in Genesis? She started with fig leaves. What's next? Fig leaves is the name of the series because every character or every set of characters in the in the series 
is going to have fig leaves. They're not going to be literal like Adam and Eve did, but every character is going to try and deal with the presence of God or the absence of God in their life with fig leaves, with man-made coverings. And then we're going to see how God covers them, makes a remedy for their fig leaves. So week two is Cain and Abel, which is a pretty obvious story about fig leaves. Then I'm going to do Lamech and the Tower of Babel. I'm going to skip straight to Abraham. Then we'll do the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, Ishmael and Isaac. Then we'll do Jacob and Esau. And then we'll do two weeks on Joseph. Joseph and his brothers uh, in the first round and Joseph and his brothers in the final round. And the whole arc of Genesis essentially follows this. You have Adam and Eve sinning, being covered by God. And then you have Joseph, who is a new patriarch, a new Adam, almost forgiving people that have done wrong against him. So you see this family, starting with Abraham, but really the whole family of humanity, going from sin and being covered by God to being forgiven by God over and over again, and then learning to forgive one another by the end of the story. So Joseph is the one who makes the covering at the end. He's a Messiah-type figure. Right. He's a precursor of Christ, which if, if you're interested in that theme, we actually did a podcast with Sam Amadi about three months ago, who wrote a book on the, the theme of Joseph as a type of Christ. And it's called From Prisoner to Prince. And so you can find that episode back maybe 10 or 15 episodes back, Sam Amadi From Prisoner to Prince, that Joseph is a Christ figure in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. He is someone who makes a covering for his family, is somebody who forgives them. He's somebody who models the grace of, of God. And so that'll be the last sermon in the series. Well, I look forward to talking about some of those as well and some of the the launching off points from them. But I, I will say I appreciated this sermon because my here was my takeaway. Uh, my takeaway was I went away thinking to myself, where in my life am I still relying on a fig leaf rather than the grace of Jesus Christ? And that was a very productive thought process for me. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.